Good morning, everyone. I am so grateful to get to fill in for Chris for one more week. Um, They are on vacation, and we are all excited to have them back. Um, But I'm really looking forward to getting to deliver one more sermon to y'all. So we are thankful that you are here this morning. I really like myself, and I'm going to guess that you do too. Not, Not like me, that you also like yourself. This doesn't mean that I always feel good about myself. That, that comes and goes, but I've always had a special knack for looking out for myself, taking care of myself. Have you ever been on an airplane when they oversold the flight? Hey, I have, in fact. Um, I'm pretty sure that it was a youth trip to New York. Um, and we were traveling as a group, and it felt like we had been sitting on the tarmac for forever without moving. You could see the flight attendants beginning to kind of stew around, and they were talking about something amongst themselves. And here in just a second, one of them comes on the PA and says, we have overbooked this flight, and we need two people to get off. Everyone's kind of looking over their shoulder like, not it. Um, And uh, so here in a second, they come back on, and they say, we're going to give a $100 voucher if someone would just take the next flight that leaves in three hours And I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder how mad James McCoy would be if I took $100 and just ran with it. (laughs) Anyway, so I, 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 uh, I fought the urge, and a few minutes later, the flight attendant comes on the PA system and says, would anybody, anyone be willing to give up their, their spot for, for $200? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot to a high school kid, and so I'm kind of looking at James and Debbie trying to get a read on the situation, and I mean, I could do some serious damage with $200, but I fought the urge, and a few more minutes later, the flight attendant comes on and says, we really need someone to, take, to get off the flight, $300, and I'm like really squirming in my seat, but a guy raises his hand, and, and he uh, gets his stuff, and he goes off the flight, and looking around, thinking, didn't she say she needed two? Well, here in a second... A few more minutes later, she says, we really just, one more seat is all we need. Would anyone be willing to give up their seat and take the next flight for $400? And at that point, it was just about irresistible. And luckily, another person raised their hand before I was able to get my hand in the air. And he got his stuff, and he walked off the plane, and my heart sank a little like I had missed out. Why why did it take $400 for someone to get off the airplane? You know, it's a lot of money, but it's also a lot of risk. What happens with your baggage? What happens with your connecting flight? What happens if the weather rolls in? What about the car rental on the other end or the family member that's scheduled to pick you up? In short, I think everyone was was playing a game in their mind just like I was. They were trying to decide what was best for them. They were trying to decide, is it worth it? Would I be better off staying on this flight or taking the money and getting off of this flight? Someone had to leave, but at the end of the day, I knew that it didn't need to be me. Someone else needed to deal with the issues and the inconvenience and the problems. You know, I have this attitude more often than I would like to admit. When I catch myself speeding up just a little bit to grab that parking spot before the person on the other aisle sees it that you know is looking for a spot, Or if I'm shopping and there's one item left on the shelf and I'm not sure if I want that item, but I put it in my cart just so it's reserved for me while I decide. I know some of y'all have done that. Don't act like you haven't. (laughs) This, This is the world that we live in, right? If I don't do it, someone else will. At our core, we are really all in competition with one another. 
In a sense, you are competing for your team, and I'm competing for my team, and frequently we find ourselves locking horns. Sometimes it's small, and often it seems inconsequential, but sometimes the stakes are a little higher. Like, have you ever competed with a friend for a promotion? You might really care about them, but deep down, you probably care about yourself a little more. I really love me, but at the end of the day, I don't find it very satisfying. And I'm going to guess that you really love you, but at the end of the day, I doubt you will find it very satisfying either. You see, we think that self-love, that looking out for ourselves is going to get us what we want. In times, we even feel like it's necessary. And so as I was preparing, I asked myself, what, what is it that we really want? I can make a long list, but most of them collapse down into a handful of really basic desires, and I've got three of them. I've got the three up on the screen. We want to feel good, we want to feel safe, and we really want to belong. But when we honestly examine our own attempts to provide these things, I think we find ourselves falling woefully short. Think about it with me for a second. Something might feel good for a while, but that feeling quickly fades, and our senses are numbed, and we need more. So that car that was so new and so exciting a few months ago soon isn't new anymore. Or that exhilarating relationship quickly becomes the norm, and it becomes boring. Or the cabinets in our house. We paint them a fancy color, and the next year the color goes out of style. Or the kids grow up and leave. And then in all these and our other pursuits, we're left feeling not so good anymore. Or or we might feel safe. We might feel safe as long as nothing happens. So we have this bank account, and it's kind of like a blanket, and it makes us feel cozy and warm, but it doesn't do much good when it rains. The markets fall, and inflation rises, and you get that tax bill in the mail, and the raise doesn't keep up with the expenses. We wear our seat belts, and we drive really careful, but that doesn't help us when someone else decides to do something not smart. We buy insurance, and we hedge ourselves against loss, but then we get a diagnosis, and we remember that being able to pay for health care and having good health are two separate things. We feel safe, but we have so little control. I sometimes wonder, are we? Or, or a sense of belonging. You belong as long as you're on top, as long as you have value and utility. But then we get hurt when family finances get in the middle of family relationships or when the boss has to make a hard decision and the work family hangs you out to dry. When you start needing more than you can give, it seems like our qu- friends quickly become unavailable. You know, in a sense, it can feel like we are hamsters running on a little wheel. And we're trying to catch something that we can never get to. We're trying to go somewhere by running faster, but it never seems to get closer. I think that the world around us is crumbling because of self-love, because of the relentless pursuit of self. And this isn't a new thing. 2,000 years ago in Romans chapter 1, you can read it starting in verse 18 and following, we see that Paul had, had seen and witnessed this same thing. What was it? It was this spiral towards destruction. And, and Paul uses this phrase. He says it was due to worshiping the creature rather than the creator. 
Or we could back up another thousand years, some 3,000 years ago, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, We read it all scattered throughout the book. It, It shows this same pursuit of self. And over and over again, the author calls it a chasing after the wind, futility, meaningless. So where do we turn? In John chapter 6, there was a whole crowd of people, and they were following Jesus for selfish reasons. They didn't love Christ. They love to have their bellies full of food. And when Christ showed them this, many of them turned away. There was, however, a group of people who saw something more. They were beginning to see that there was something bigger than just filling themselves. And so on the screen, you'll see John 6, verses 66 through 68. After this, many of his disciples quit following him and did not accompany him any longer. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, we eat and we are soon hungry again. When we seek to fill ourselves, we likewise soon find ourselves empty. But I propose that there is a better way. There is a way to find eternal fullness. Where do we go? Where do we turn? Well, we turn to the only being worthy of love. Church, if you pursue yourself, you will catch yourself and be terribly disappointed. But if you pursue God, you will catch God and be eternally full. Let's read our key text for this morning. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets depend on this. To love God is the central, supreme pursuit of mankind. You know, when Mark tells the story, he adds a couple of additional realities. There we read that this is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, and that to understand this is to be close to the kingdom of God. You see, this wasn't just a trite saying of Christ. This wasn't just a cute line that belongs on a coffee mug. Christ clearly saw the propensity of mankind to pursue themselves, and he contrasts that with the right focus, the pursuit of God. And this was at the core of Jesus' teaching and example. Jesus taught that the pursuit of self was counterproductive. So let's look at a sampling of some of these passages. In Luke chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus taught this, "'Whoever receives this child in my name receives me.'" And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Or in Mark 10, 42 through 45, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or John 13, 14 through 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. You know, it doesn't make sense. And his disciples struggled with it just like we do. The least can't be great, and the great aren't servants and slaves, and adults have more value and understanding than children, and the God of the universe should rule the universe. He shouldn't be washing dirty feet and unjustly accused of a crime that he didn't commit and suffer and die on a cross. When viewed through our natural lenses, nothing about this makes sense. And yet, this is what Jesus meant when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And we also see it in Jesus' example. This is what Jesus lived out when he showed us how to do this. In Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11, we see a great picture painted of this. So if there's any encouragement with Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He showed us what it looked like to focus his affection on the only thing worthy of it, and that was God. And the result? God exalted him. The last of the servants, the slaves, are indeed first in the kingdom of God. And this was the heart of Jesus' teaching and example. And so that brings up the question, what does this look like for you? 1 John 3.16 we read last week, and I'm going to read it again. "By, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. So, first of all, we know that it looks like giving your life for other followers of Christ. But we also read this in Luke 6, 33-35. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. You know, it's a lot more difficult to give your life for those who are not believers, those who will not love you back, those who are your enemies. If I take you back to our key text for a second, it's no accident that Jesus gave the Pharisee more than he asked for. He asked for the greatest commandment, and Jesus gave him two. Why? I believe that they are inseparable. To love God is to love people. You know, we often say that this call to love our neighbor as ourself, that this command shows us that we need to have a a strong self-esteem because to love others like you love yourself, you have to love yourself a lot. 
And the heart of that sentiment is good. We certainly should not be self-deprecating in how we view ourselves, but, but I think that that approach kind of does violence to the text. This text assumes that you are good at looking out for yourself, and the point being made is not about your self-esteem. This text isn't about fond feelings for yourself. It's not about your fond feelings for others. This text is about prioritizing the needs of others above your own. This text is about prioritizing the life of another human being above your own. Loving others is the tangible form of our love for God. It shows that our love is not just affection, but affection coupled with action. Our affection for God leads to action towards our fellow human beings. And as we just read, this is both for those who are our friends and those who are our enemies. Those enemies who might abuse this and take advantage of it. And church, this is the most counterintuitive backwards and difficult to grasp way of thinking that there is. This is totally countercultural. This goes against everything that we see in nature. But it works. I want to revisit our discussion from before. What are our foundational desires? I collapsed it into three. I said we want to feel good, we want to feel safe, and we want to belong. So what happens in these areas when we love God and love our neighbor? We want to feel good, but it can feel pretty terrible to watch those around us experiencing good things in life while we feel like we are missing out and trampled on, right? Jeremiah expressed this feeling um, that we often have in Jeremiah chapter 12. In verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read this to you. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. This is Jeremiah speaking. Yet... I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root and they grow and produce fruit. And you are near in their mouth but far from their heart. But you, O oh Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, Really, God? This is how it's going to be? Those people who don't care about you are going to prosper? And how does God answer? Well, he starts by putting Jeremiah in his place. In verse 5, he says, If you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? In other words, God starts by saying, You need to stand down a little bit, buddy. Hey, you can't even begin to hang with me in my power and my understanding. And then I'm going to summarize the next 10 verses for you. God says, I see, I know, and this is temporary. You know, it may not always look like it's better to love God, but it is. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter 1, 8-9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Better than feeling good, is joy inexpressible and filled with glory because of our confidence in eternal salvation. And this is intimately tied to our next desire to feel safe. True safety isn't possible in this world. We can wear a seatbelt and we're safer than if we weren't. And we can have a storm shelter and we're safer than if we did not. But better than feeling safe is being safe. 
the eternal security of salvation for our souls. 1 Peter 3, 13-14 says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. Why? Well, Jesus said it in Matthew 10, 28, because even those who might have the authority to kill the body can't kill the soul. Loving God gives us eternal security that far surpasses feeling safe. So what does it do for our sense of longing? Well, it gives us a family and a community where we belong today and forever. Ephesians 2.19 reads, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We see in this verse two forms that our desire for belonging is satisfied. We become fellow citizens with the saints. We exist as the church, the community of believers who have collectively agreed to set aside self and pursue God. But this isn't just a human form of belonging. The bond we share is because we are members of the household of God. This means that the creator of this universe has adopted you and pulled you into his family, and you have a stable and eternal place to belong. Stable joy, eternal security, and a family both here and for eternity. And where are these things found? Not in pursuing yourself. These are found in the only being worthy of love, God. So I've made the case. Our pursuit of self leaves us empty while the pursuit of God leaves us eternally full. But how do we do this? How do we change our own focus from inward to outward? How do you move from self-love to God-love? And I'm going to propose three things. The first thing is you need to read. Scripture continually proclaims why God is worthy of love. It lays out this reality for us in a way where, where we can not only see that, but we can see where self-love lands us. I would argue that the first step is an intellectual one. At the very beginning of our service, we read from Romans 12, 2, and it told us not to be conformed, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Okay? We need to transform our mind. Jesus in this text said that all the law and the prophets hinge upon this. This means that a right reading of Scripture will reinforce these ideas and reasons at every single turn. So it's important to spend time in God's Word. The second thing that we need to do is ask. In Mark 9.24, a man tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And while we may understand many of these truths, we need help applying them. We see Jesus frequently got away and he spent time in prayer. And I believe learning to love God with all of our heart cannot happen apart from prayer. And finally, to change, we need to move. Jesus tells us in Luke 5.32 that he didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. The church is full of lovers of self being transformed into lovers of God. While our ultimate goal is the love of God, our ultimate failure is our inability to do this as we should. And for this, Jesus stepped in to bridge the gap. And once we have him, 
once He covers us and shares His Spirit with us, we find that changes start happening that would have been impossible before. We find the fruit of the Spirit starts to grow, and each fruit is rooted in directing our affections towards God instead of self. You know, I think one of the most amazing things about all of this is the fact that God loves us even when we don't love Him. And that's what makes it love. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it ridiculously miraculous. You know, our first step is really just one step, and that first step is towards Him. If you are an unbeliever, please understand, living in this crazy, counterintuitive way doesn't happen overnight. In fact, you are probably observant enough to point out how much those here in the church struggle with this. You've probably seen our mistakes and the way that our selfish desires creep in and cause us to damage our reputation and our witness. I'm sorry for the times you have seen or experienced someone wearing the name Christian prioritize their own well-being over yours or someone else's. It's my prayer that you can see past our brokenness to the truth that has been taught and proclaimed. While our love is, is far from perfect, I do think we get glimpses of it on this side of eternity. I hope you can see that we too yearn for the same things that you do. We, we seek to fill them in ways that lead to emptiness. But we've also experienced what it looks like to be on the other side. Every once in a while, we get a good sampling from one another. It peeks its head out at times. But every single week, every single day, we experience this from Christ. The fact that he loves us in our brokenness and imperfection, the fact that he would die for a bunch of hypocrites, that he would love this broken community of believers, this broken community of sinners. That's what I'm talking about. And every single person listening to my voice can experience and become part of that. Not only do I hope that speaks to those who might be searching, I hope it speaks to those of you who are struggling. The only being worthy of love has loved you so deeply that he gave his very self for you. So this universal access to his love makes me wonder, what would it look like if we all did this? How would it change this church? How would it change this community? How would it change the world? You know, we can turn on the news and we can see where the pursuit of selfish gain has landed us, and it can be pretty discouraging. With such a track record of failure, you'd think we would be willing to try some other things. Church, there's going to be a day when perfect love is expressed. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and God is going to dwell among his people, and heaven will be realized in that moment. But until then, it should be our goal to live with such a fervent love for God that we forget about ourselves. And when we do, when we do, we put the glory of God on display in an undeniable way. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I believe when God has seen, the world has changed, and when people see love, they cannot deny that God is at work. When God has experienced through love, the world has changed. When people experience love, and I'm talking about the the backwards, nothing in it for me, nonsense type of love that God gives, when they experience that, they cannot deny that God is at work. But what about you? 
as backward as it may seem, and as hard as it may be to wrap our mind around it, when we stop pursuing ourselves, ourselves are preserved. When I was a, a young boy, my brother and I used to always build forts. We're pretty good at it. We built some pretty cool forts. Most of our forts were just kind of this, you know, limbs and leaves, and we'd tied it together. And every once in a while, we would maybe, uh, maybe snag a tarp out of the garage when Dad wasn't watching, and that would make it out to our forts back in the woods. And we would have all sorts of fun until a windstorm came or it rained and our fort was destroyed and we would have to start over again. There is a tree, however, in Buffalo Gap that was different. It was this big, strong oak tree. And one time we built a fort in it. I, I won't call it a tree house because it wasn't that intense. But we built a fort in the oak tree, and it was hidden way back in the woods where you couldn't see it. Recently in Buffalo Gap, they cleared some brush out, um, I think maybe for fire control. And for now you can see that old oak tree from the road. And when I drive through Buffalo Gap, I can't help but notice in that tree there are still boards attached 25 years later that my brother and I played on as kids. You know, Jesus shared a similar story in parable form. He talked about how building on a firm foundation makes all the difference. When the rains fall down and the floods came up and the storms rage, will your house stand or fall? It depends on your foundation. You have a choice where you build. The wise man builds his house on the rock, Matthew 7, 25. He who hears the words of Christ and does them is like the man who builds his house on a rock. Living like Jesus taught and demonstrated changes everything, not only for our eternal future, but I believe for our life in the here and now. If you have been pursuing yourself, please know you are on shaky ground. But it doesn't have to be that way. God, the only being worthy of love, has given us a firm foundation to latch on to. Here we are, a community of believers, daily wrestling with turning our focus to him, to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind, and we can't do this alone. But when we're joined to Christ in baptism, when we're supported by a family of believers, we see change. And as we set aside our desire for self-preservation, we see a different type of hope and stability set in. And that's the good news. And I hope you see it. I hope you want it. Let us help. Anyone with needs is invited to respond to our invitation. Come forward as we stand and sing.